Welcome to High Heels in Politics, the podcast where we talk with the leaders of Ohio and beyond. And now, your host, Marianne Christie. High Heels in Politics listeners will hear about a proposed amendment to the Ohio Constitution at a special election that will have state and national implications. The single issue at the August 8th 2023 election is Issue 1. What is Issue 1? Voters will decide whether to make it more difficult to modify the state's constitution by raising the need for passing future constitutional amendments from a simple majority of 50% to 60% and some other restrictive conditions for placing proposals on a general ballot. Since 1912, Ohioans have had the right to bring issues to an election, and passing these amendments with 50% plus one voter approval and with an existing cure period. Out of the 49 states that require voter support, In order to amend their respective constitutions, 38 states require a simple majority vote, 50% plus one, and in the 11 other states, voters must approve the amendment by more than a simple majority and by some other rules. Only Florida and Illinois both require a 60% supermajority, and Colorado requires a 55%. The ballot issue has both positive and negative results. As the host of High Heels in Politics, Marianne Christie, I have asked leading advocates to discuss the pros and cons about Issue 1. Our guest today will present the positive reasons for passing the issue. Last week on High Heels and Politics, Jen Miller, the executive director of the Ohio League of Women Voters, discussed the negative aspect. Our guest today is Rachel Sittak. Rachel will tell you why to vote yes on issue one. Rachel is a civil rights and constitutional law attorney who was born and raised in Cincinnati. She's a graduate of Turpin High School. She received her undergraduate degree cum laude from Xavier University and her law degree from the University of Cincinnati College of Law. She has had extensive experience at the state capitol as an in-house counsel and lobbyist. She serves on numerous boards, including the Cincinnati Enquirer Board of Contributors and is the president of the Right to Life of the Greater Cincinnati Board. Rachel and I have both served on She Leads Board. The pros for passage, it protects the Ohio Constitution by making it more difficult for the Constitution to be amended by the influence of money and special interests from both inside and outside of Ohio. The opposition for voting against Issue 1, 
Placing this important issue at an August election where only a predicted 8% of the voters will vote that will undo constitutional citizen protection that has been placed for 100 years. The proposed ballot issue will appear at the August election as follows. The proposed amendment would require that any proposed amendment to the Constitution of the state of Ohio receive the approval of at least 60% of eligible voters voting on the proposed amendment. It requires that any initiative petition filed on or after January 1, 2024, with the Secretary of State proposing to amend the Constitution of the State of Ohio to be signed by at least 5% of the electors of each county based on the total vote in the county for the governor in the last preceding election specifying that additional signatures may not be added to an initiative petition proposing to amend the Constitution of the State of Ohio that is filed with the Secretary of State on or after January 1, 2024, proposing to amend the Constitution of the State of Ohio. If Issue 1, the amendment will be effective immediately. Rachel, let's begin with the current process. What are the present requirements to put a citizen-led measure to amend the Ohio Constitution on the ballot? Does Issue 1 cover other proposed ballot issues or just amendments to the Constitution? Yeah, so there's two different methods to bring about a amendment to the Constitution. There's a legislative-led process and there's a citizen-led process. Issue one applies to the standards for both of those processes. When you look at the citizen-led process, what happens is you have a petitioner that collects what are called supplemental signatures on forms. They're separate forms for signature collectors that are uncompensated. And they're separate forms for signature collectors who are paid to collect signatures and circulate the forms. What that signature collector has to do is gather 5% of the eligible voters from half of Ohio's counties. And that needs to account for a 10% total. Those signatures are go, have to go through a verification process. You have to figure out if any of those signatures are a, a real person that's alive or has passed away, if they're an Ohio resident, if they're a registered voter, if it's their real address or of residence or if they've moved. And it should be noted that issue one, it doesn't apply to the process for a referendum or levies. It also doesn't stop citizens from appealing to the legislative process. Issue one made it to the ballot through the legislative process. It was proposed and approved by legislators that we elected to the Ohio House and Senate at the Capitol. They voted for issue one with a supermajority of over 67 percent, sent it to the governor to sign, and now it's going to be sent to the people to vote and receive a 50 percent plus one. Rachel, since 1912, Ohioans have had the right to bring a constitutional amendment with restrictions to the ballot. It's not a Republican or Democratic issue. So the question, is it about preserving the right of people or protecting the Constitution? I would say that it's not 
one or the other. It's a both and. You cannot preserve the right of the people without protecting the Constitution, and you can't protect the Constitution without preserving the right of the people. I know that in a previous podcast that it was mentioned that the perspective of the Ohio League of Women Voters is that the Constitution is a living document. That is a perspective and a view of the Constitution with very far-reaching implications. It often leads to the aspirational, confusing messages like right of the people or one person, one vote. Let's look at what those words actually mean in a historical context. I believe that the Constitution is not a living document. It's a dead document and that it's meant to provide the balance, stability, and freedom that a living republic should have. Like I said, go over a couple historical points and your listeners can decide if our Constitution is worth protecting. The Ballot Initiative Strategy Center is an outside interest that's active in our state, says the goal is to leverage ballot measures across the U.S. to strengthen democracy, to center people of color, queer, and marginalized, to galvanize a new progressive base, and strengthen democracy. The thing is that the United States is not a direct democracy or a populist nation. The framers designed a constitutional republic, if we can keep it. The strength and power of the Constitution includes its amendments. With those amendments, it supersedes statutes that are passed by our elected officials. And right now, there is, in my opinion, a lazy extremist push to circumvent the legislative process. And so-called progressive ballot initiatives are passing successfully in other states. There's big money in making Ohio the next target. Instead of changing hearts and minds and winning a majority, electing the candidates that you want, there's a danger of the fleeting passions of our day being what ends up in our founding document. But just like the U.S. Constitution, the state constitution insulates Ohio's from any radical passions of the day. A difficult amendment process makes sure that amendments have been proven gravely necessary with widespread appeal and a general consensus, a good constitution keeps a country in existence, even when there's civil disrest and and civil discord. When we have a burdened constitution like Ohio's that has 174 amendments and counting 67,000 words, that's job security for me. Ohioans shouldn't have to hire an attorney like me just to understand their basic rights, but that's the Constitution that we've got. We can vote out corrupt politicians. We can vote out crooked office holders and throw them in jail. We can overwrite bad statutes. But an amendment is almost impossible to undo. And anyone who cares about the state of our state enough to listen to your program probably can agree that slavery is not okay. But in 1862, that wasn't Attorney James Bogan pointed out in a Willie Cunningham show how the Corwin Amendment almost made it impossible for the federal government to intervene in the institution of slavery. It would have prevented any amendments related to slavery. No 13th Amendment banning slavery. It would have been impossible. The Corwin Amendment was proposed by an Ohioan, and it was supposed to be the solution to a fleeting fixation that we had on preventing cessation of the South, succession of the South. But Corwin just couldn't get enough states to ratify it. Thank God. So yes, I want amendments to be difficult as a Black American, as a Black Ohioan. The ones that we need are not going to have trouble passing, and the politicians we don't need can be voted out. What other states have a supermajority requirement for constitutional amendments? I think that it's important 
as an overall understanding for listeners to know that 32 other states don't even allow citizen-initiated amendments at all. When you get into breaking down the mechanisms of passing an amendment, it gets a little complicated because some states require a certain percentage turnout or ballots cast. Some states require different standards for different amendment issues like tax or lottery or hunting amendments may require an elevated percentage of 60% or 66%. Some require a simple majority, but every blank ballot essentially counts as a no vote because the total electorate must vote as a simple majority. So even though it's a simple majority, the it's out of the entire eligible voters. It's not out of just the ballots cast. But like I said, most states do not even allow citizens to initiate constitutional amendments, which makes the super simple majority question, it's somewhat apples to oranges. And super majority is a little bit of a misnomer because there's a lot of other states that have different mechanisms for protecting the Constitution. I'm licensed in Ohio, so I don't know necessarily the nuances of the practice in other states, but I do know that according to Ballopedia, there are 11 other states that require that supermajority approval. In the issue one, it's being asked that if passed, that the addition of any additional signatures would be prohibited. It's also referred to as an existing cure period. It's just a 10-day period to add more signatures. Do you want to comment on why that is? Like you said, the cure period is that 10 days after signature verification process. It's an opportunity to cure or fix the signature deficits by gathering more signatures. And I would say that by eliminating that cure period, that we're discouraging and deterring cheating on the process, as some Ohioans would view it. Typically, Americans are not fans of this concept of a second bite at the apple because every bite costs time, energy, labor, and expense. If you look at the concept of double jeopardy, we typically say, no, you couldn't catch me once, so don't come after me again. Res judicata, that's a principle that says, no, if you sued me, you received a final judgment for your money, don't sue me again. Get it right. And so we see that again with this concept of a cure period is that Ohioans are saying, no, if you hassled 700,000 people, for signatures, and you only needed 450,000, and you still can't verify enough, maybe it's because you're running a pay-per-signature campaign at $20 a pop. Like we have on video that was captured by Created Equal, there are signature collectors right now that know that there are requirements for someone to be eligible to sign. But as he says on the video, I understand that, but when it comes to getting paid, Every signature counts from a managerial standpoint for getting paid. So we want to make sure that we're preventing that kind of behavior. When you only have to get 50% plus one, when you only have to worry about getting enough signatures that you can fix in a cure period, then we're going to see that kind of misleading behavior. Rachel, how many eligible voters are in Ohio? How many voted in the 2022 general election and how many voted in the special August 22 election? When we look at the November 2022 general election, there were at that time 8,029,950 registered voters, according to the Secretary of State website. In that election, we had a 52 percent turnout. 
If we look at the August 2022 special election, we had 7.9 million registered voters, and we only had 638,708 votes that came. That was an 8% turnout, edging slightly Republican. We do see a much lower turnout on the special elections than we do in the general election. If passed, the ballot issue provides elected representatives with the power to pass legislation and directly adds to the concentration of power that are made by legislators. Do you really think it discourages political participation that can check legislative power? Electing representatives, that's a check on power. I think that primaries check power. I think that the ability for us as citizens to run for office, that checks power. Citizens lobbying checks power. Courts check power. Campaign funding and local parties are a check on power. Once an amendment is added, repeal is almost impossible. There is no check on power there like there is at all these other levels. Turnout to gain a, a right or exchange right of signatures we, we just discussed is, is very low. It's going to be even lower when you talk about the effort for repealing. I think that it's important for listeners to know that the groups that oppose issue one, it's just come out in an analysis that many of them support super maturities for their own founding organizational documents. It was left out that the Ohio Democrat Party is a part of that opposition to issue one, and they require a 60% vote for amending their own party constitution. So I think that our founding document certainly requires that kind of protection. We underestimate how fringe mob rule with a simple majority and the power of deceptive messaging can truly allow special interests a level of power that is very concerning. The opposition to issue one, it wasn't mentioned in the in with the last podcast interview, but the opposition to issue one includes the Columbus Dispatch. It includes the Cleveland Plain Dealer, the ACLU, unions, Planned Parenthood, CARE, feminist leadership, environmental and climate action. All of these out-of-state interests have the potential for unchecked power in our state without issue one in place. If the amendment is so important, then why is it being held in a special election in August? Why isn't the issue on November 7, 2023 general election? Yeah, it's been posed why now. I can say that issue one and this kind of protection for the Constitution is something that has been necessary for a long time. I think that's reflected in a previous bipartisan legislative effort to provide this kind of protection to the Constitution. I'm glad to see the legislature working overtime this summer to uh, earn our tax money. I think that issue one is long overdue. What other groups really support a yes vote on issue one? The support for issue one is truly being driven locally. We have Ohio restaurant owners, Ohio Chamber of Commerce, Ohio pro-gun groups, pro-family groups, Ohio parental rights groups, Ohio Farm Bureau, Right to Life of Greater Cincinnati, of course, Ohio Hotel and Lodging, the NFIB, and all of these coalition members, you can find them on www.voteyesohio.com. 
the effort has set itself apart and being driven by these local organizations that are making it possible for voters in their cities, in their areas, in their regions to be informed about the implications of an Ohio without issue one. Well, Rachel, you really give a lot of strong, good reasons for voting yes on issue one. But I'm going to switch here for a minute because your legal services cover an interesting area of law about horses. How (laughs) did you ever get involved in horses? Yeah, yeah. So equine law is a niche that that I do cover along with with the civil rights and, and constitutional law. I am an equestrian, so that niche came naturally as being a part of Cincinnati's equestrian community to add in alongside of my other work. A lot of equine law overlaps with things that I'm already looking at and contracts or employment law. And then coming back to my hometown to operate my practice has just been such a joy. Getting to help individuals with with their employment law issues, their civil rights issues, constitutional law, free speech, religious liberty, discrimination that they experience on the basis of race, religion, or sex has been great. I also work with nonprofits. I provide litigation and legal representation to my clients, as well as that kind of public relations with press and media and advocacy arm of representation that that I think is so pivotal to making sure that clients are set up for success. Did you always ride horses or did you compete? I, I started riding at six and I, I remember just begging my parents, can I please have lessons? And they were holding off and holding off. They wanted to, they were worried because I was small as a kid and they were, I, I'm sure it's very daunting for a parent to think of their kid getting on a 1200 pound animal. I can say that it is just so, I would recommend any parent to encourage their kid to do it, especially parents of girls, because when you can, as an individual, learn to be in partnership with an animal that is 1,200 pounds and learn to work with them and learn to communicate with them and learn to stand up for yourselves and to be an advocate for that animal, you won't find yourself often railroaded by any human because you have been through walking with and partnering and working with an animal of that size and intelligence. And I'm so grateful that my parents started me on the path of horseback riding because it's just, it's been so pivotal to my personal development for sure. When my daughter was six years old, she also wanted to ride horses. And I agree with you that if a a young girl can handle a horse, she can handle any problems that she faces as she grows older. It's interesting. I want to thank you for your time and sharing your position on issue one. But how can High Heels and Politics listeners contact you for additional information on how they can help you? Absolutely. I would love to have any of your listeners join me on Instagram. My handle is at Attorney Advocate. I am so behind in my podcast episodes, but if they want to check out the few episodes that I have up, my podcast is Attorney at Law Advocate at Heart. I really need to get back on making new episodes, but that has been a trip. The uh, attorney for the Murdoch victims, I've gotten to interview neonatologists and, and attorneys, election law attorneys, and have also uh, spoken with Supreme Court winners and discussed issues like cultural appropriation and really just tried to bring a 
a nuanced conservative perspective to these issues of the day. And I, I really do need to get back into it. I love how you're able to put out episodes regularly on your podcast. That's so important. Again, thank you, Rachel. High Heels and Politics is produced by Marianne Christie and Ryan Kulik. Engineered by Ryan Kulik. Music by Sherrod Sate. Subscribe to High Heels and Politics on Google, Apple, Spotify, and all of your podcast networks.